At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Well, if you would, please make your way to John chapter 1 in your Bibles this morning. John chapter 1 is where we will spend our time. If you've been around the last few weeks, then you'll know we've been working through an ancient document that outlines the essential beliefs of Christianity. It's something that's called the Apostles' Creed. Why are we doing this? Because despite what we hear all around us, we believe that there is a God and there is such a thing as truth. And I believe that you are sitting and breathing here this morning in these services or watching online because God wants you to know him and because God wants you to know truth. I believe it when Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's ultimately what the scriptures are meant to do. They are meant to tell us the story, the true story of who we are, who God is, what he's like, what we're like, ultimately to bring us salvation and freedom. And so part of the creed that we're looking at today is uh, this phrase where it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, the father's son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Those are some massive truth claims right there. If you're just stacking up worldviews and philosophies and what people think about truth, just what we said right there, there's so much. But if you believe them, it'll change everything about you. Ultimately, creeds help us with some very fundamental questions. And perhaps one of the most fundamental questions of all of humanity is, what is God like? I would think that most people here, I'm assuming because you're here this morning, maybe about 80% of our society, they say, say they believe in God. And most people here, just over half of our society, say they believe in the God of the Bible. But when people say, I believe in the God of the Bible, what they really mean is, I believe in the God of my own personal interpretation of the Bible. That's what's most common. They believe in what I'll call the PRV translation. Anybody ever heard of that one? That is the personally revised version, if you were curious. I made that up. And so did you. And that's the point. Just a little lame pastor's joke this morning. I'm sorry. Just let it soak in for a second. See, we have this terrible tendency of conforming what God is like into our own personal preferences. It's our own personal picture. I've heard this called personal space theology. Uh, Personal space theology is where the image of God ends up looking a lot, not like God, but like me. 
And that's what we tend to do in our culture today. Personal space theology says that my preferences, my presuppositions, my personal tastes, my view of justice, my view of right and wrong, of morality, of humanity, God ends up with this kind of application being a caricature birthed out of our own imaginations. I had dinner with some friends this week and they just returned from Rome and one of the moments that stood out to them when they had visited the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City was that Michelangelo painted over 300 figures on this ceiling. You can look them up on your phone. I know that you're only looking at your phones during church service to look at the Word of God, to do nothing else. So I'll give you permission for a moment here to look them up if you'd like, because I'm not going to put them on the screen. We're keeping everything PG here in the service this morning. But the most well-known of all these scenes are the center panels that depict creation and the fall and the flood. And what is so shocking is that the paintings, if you've ever noticed this before, are completely enculturated. They're completely enculturated. They reflect the culture of Rome, not the culture of the Bible. In fact, he was commissioned to try to bring back the glory of Rome. So he depicted the Bible through a Roman lens. Who knew that all the characters of Genesis and even God himself, they all look exactly like Southern Europeans that lived in a Roman society. God's word was painted to conform to the image of man in Rome, not the other way around. I've heard it said like this, as soon as we try to image him, God, we limit him. In fact, many attempts to make an image of God are actually a way of trying to control him. God is not like us. Yes, we believe that every human being is made in his image. It's something that we call the Imago Dei. And that gives all of us incredible and unique value and beauty and purpose. But that does not mean that God conforms to your image or to mine. So how do we know what God is like? Well, in John chapter 1, we'll see what the apostle writes in this chapter. He says that Jesus truly shines the light on God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. That's the answer. Or listen to how one theologian put it. To say that Jesus is divine does not change our understanding of Jesus. It changes our understanding of divinity. So listen to what John wrote in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has seen God. Moses did not see God even when he sat face to face in the tabernacle. Moses only saw the afterglow of the divine glory passing by. Isaiah did not see God when he received the vision of the Lord on his throne. Isaiah 6 tells us that he only saw the hem of the Lord's garment. No one can fully answer what God is like, but now John says the only God, Jesus, has made God known. Jesus shines the light on who God is. Only Jesus' life and only Jesus' teaching bring clarity to what God is like. Now that changes our faith from so many others. 
who claim to have knowledge of the divine, knowledge of who God is. We are making this exclusive claim that everyone can receive, that we are basing all of our understanding of God upon the words teaching life of Jesus himself. This gets right at the heart of the gospel, though. Because the good news in all of this is that you and I can actually know God. You can know who he is, what he's like. And if you think that's a dangerous and a scary thing, it is. And if you think that's a wonderful and peaceful thing, it is. It's a life and death thing. It's a love and lost thing. It's a hope and hopelessness thing. It's everything, in fact. The unknowable, unseeable, supremely holy and transcendent creator God. The scriptures tell us, the gospel assures us, you can actually know him personally. Because he has made himself known. And he has revealed himself most clearly through his son, Jesus. So as we work our way through this scripture, we're simply asking ourselves, how? How does Jesus reveal God? Now, three points this morning. First, Jesus is able to make God known through his relationship to God the Father. Look at verse one. It's really, uh, he's picking up on language that should sound so familiar to you. It's how not just his gospel starts, but it's how the whole Bible starts. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. How does John describe Jesus' relationship to the Father? Now, the rest of the chapter lets us know that Jesus is the one that he is calling here the Word. So in the beginning, before anything that is came to be, Jesus was. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was and is God. This goes right back to something we talked about last week, the doctrine of the Trinity, On the one hand, John says that Jesus is distinct from God. Jesus, the word, was with God. He was distinct from him, but with him. But on the other hand, he equates Jesus with God. He says that the word was God. So from the beginning, there's always been both this distinction between Jesus and God and also this unity between Jesus and God. Verse 3, and all things were made through him, referring to Jesus, And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So the father said, let there be light. And the son brought light into existence. I don't understand the science behind it all, but I've read that there are about 100 billion stars on on average in the average galaxy. And there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. Einstein believed that we, have scanned, uh, that, that, that we have scanned with our largest telescopes only one, one billionth or one billionth of theoretical space. Try to figure that one out. I, I can't comprehend it. But what this means is that there are probably something like 10, the number 10, with 27 zeros behind it, stars in space. Just if you like to take notes, if you got a pen, if you got something to write on in front of you, just write that down. Seriously, write it down. Write down 10, one zero, and then follow it with 27 zeros. How many is that? 
1,000 thousands is a million. 1,000 millions is a billion. 1,000 billions is a trillion. 1,000 trillions is a quadrillion. 1,000 quadrillions is a quintillion. 1,000 quintillions is a sextillion. 1,000 sextillions is a septillion. 1,000 septillions is an octillion. 10, octillion, 10 with 27 zeros behind it. And Jesus, whose words we have in this book, like the words that he literally spoke to other human beings. Jesus, the words that we have right here, who ate fish with his friends, who gave some hugs to some kids, who preached sermons to a few people in little synagogues. He made them all. Like the contrast is beyond what I can really kind of comprehend. I don't get it. That not only is he the creator of the macrocosm of the universe, but he's also the one who holds the microcosm of the universe together, every atom in our being. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now all of us relate to God as creatures. He is the creator and we are his creatures This distinction between God and us is what defines our relationship. He is the Lord and we are his servants. He is God and we are human. He is all-knowing and we have limited understanding. He is all-powerful and the only time in our lives where we think we're powerful is when we're 14 years old and hit a new max at the gym. And while Jesus is fully human, he's not a created creature. He's the eternal God-man creator who made the creatures. Maybe you're understanding why these verses are some of the most debated and contentious verses in all of the New Testament. It's because of what they're claiming. It's because of what the word of God is saying. It's because of what we say we believe. Groups like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus was the first and greatest created being, but not the creator. Well, that makes him less than God. But if he is not God, then verse four of John's first chapter cannot be true. Because verse four says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Not just a kind of life, not not just any life, Everything that is life, all life is in him and from him. Without Jesus, we will not find life. Without Jesus, you will not be enlightened. Without Jesus, the end of the story is death and darkness. But with Jesus, the end of your story is eternal life with the light of man. So the relationship between Jesus and God is that Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And these claims right there, what he's talking about, this is why people wanted to kill him. The apologist C.S. Lewis said that if Jesus claims to be God are not true, then he is the greatest megalomaniac ever. And that is true. 
Lewis also wrote, there is no halfway house and there is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would first have rent his clothes and then cut off your head. The idea of a great moral teacher saying that Christ, uh, saying that Jesus is simply a great moral teacher, that, that whole concept, it's out of the question. You cannot come to that conclusion based on what he said about himself. And we can see from this scripture that Jesus reveals God through his unique relationship with him, within the Trinity. God is Father, he is Son, and the Spirit then is introduced just a little later in the chapter in verse 32. John hasn't unpacked all that he wants to say about the Trinity in these first few verses. There's more to come, but I hope you'll notice that John's picture of Jesus, it's not a caricature, it's the real thing. And the picture that he paints is this massive portrait of Jesus as the great creator God of the universe. And this picture has opened up the eyes of countless people to the truth of the gospel and led to their salvation. You can read this section of scripture a thousand times and find that each time Christ gets a little bigger. Every time. It's like when Lucy came face to face with the lion Aslan who represents Christ in Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. And after seeing him, uh, after not seeing him, that is, for a great while, Lucy is reintroduced with him. And, and so Aslan says, welcome, child. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And after every year of God's grace, and after every week that passes by where you reflect upon his faithfulness to you, after every season of life passes you by and you look back and you see his hand, with you, he just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's the journey. That's the Christian life. If you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. And as you know Jesus, the expanse of who he is only grows. And Jesus is able to make God known through his relationship with him. Second, how does he make him known? By enlightening everyone who believes in him. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone. Again, referencing Christ was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there are two sides to this truth. Through trusting in Jesus, putting your faith in him, we step into his light and are able to know who he is and who God is. But when we resist Jesus and refuse him, then we flee from the light and remain in darkness about who God is and who we are. The world did not know him, even his own people did not receive him. Why did people receive Christ? You'd think of course, you'd think that if the creator of the creatures showed up in the creation, that the creatures would acknowledge him, appreciate him. But that's not what happened. That's not what happens now. Why? 
Listen to what Jesus says a couple chapters later in chapter 3, verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. I have come into the world, he says. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Right now, I'm seeing it online. I'm seeing it on social media. I'm trying not to become jealous, but there's so many people. It's like half of the population of our state goes south. And they go south and they soak in the sun and they're usually in Florida. I've never been to Florida one time around this time of year and not run into people from Michigan. We just kind of consume big parts of the state. So right now there's so many heading to or heading back from uh, the deep south where it's hot and humid and where there are these little creatures, other creatures, not as intelligent creatures, not certainly not made in the image of God, called roaches that live down there. And I remember going to a friend's house after it had been empty for a while in the south. It had been empty for several weeks, and so we, we brought all of our stuff inside and put down our suitcases and started flipping on all the lights, walked into the kitchen, flipped on all the lights, and all of a sudden we saw, when we flipped on those lights, just a scattering of these roaches. They all just went running. Roaches, they don't just sit there. They scatter. They hate the light. Not because the light is inherently going to hurt them, but because the light exposes them. It gives them away. The world resists Jesus. They reject the light because Jesus exposes the world for the fraud that it is. Maybe that's where you are today. The lights got turned on and you just went running from God. Many of us, I think that's part of our story. Where you just come face to face with the glory, the holiness, the righteousness, the beauty, the love of Jesus. All of a sudden those lights go on. You're exposed. And instead of being exposed and naked and afraid, you just run. Just run away. And then... Maybe you've been running ever since. You just ran and ran until you were covered up in filth and dirt and sweat and tattered clothes. And Maybe you got finally tired of running. Maybe that's where you are right now, just tired of running from the light, tired of the idea or the threat of being exposed. And then maybe your story, it's kind of like Forrest Gump. You finally came to your senses and said, I'm pretty tired. I think I'll go home now. And maybe that's God's invitation for you this morning. Maybe that's where you are. It's time to say, yeah, I think I'll go home now. It's time to stop running away. Other people, if they're not running away from the light, they attack the light. They want to destroy it. That's what happened to Christ. That's why he was nailed to a cross. I've heard it said it's no surprise in view of Jesus' teachings and actions that Jesus was crucified. What is so surprising is that it did not happen sooner. But whether you run from the light or attack the light, the result is the same. You remain in darkness. You remain in ignorance about who God is, about who you are, and about what real life and purpose look like. You can run away. You can attack, or you can find rest in his light and in his love and in his grace. That is a choice that you can make today.
The truth is, even if you have become a child of God through submitting your life to the light of Jesus, the way of the world has this tendency to show back up has this tendency to show back up in our lives, even if we placed our faith in him. At least it does in me. Maybe all of you here are like, you know what? I came to faith in Jesus, and I just live in perfect obedience all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. But for me, Jesus' words, Jesus' way, they are still exposing my love sometimes to the darkness. They're still exposing me. And in that moment, I'm still given that choice nearly every day. I can run, I can attack, or I can say, actually, if I just stay here and receive what you have for me, it feels dangerous, it feels scary, I feel exposed, but right here is actually where I feel your mercy. This is where my life changes. This is where everything settles. This is where the weight is removed. This is where we can say in confidence, like Jesus, I came to give you life and life to the fullest. And the yoke that I give you, it's, it's light. It's not a burden. Stop carrying the burden off into the dark when he's saying, just drop it and walk in his way. The question is, what are you going to do today? Are you going to run? Are you going to hide? Are you going to attack? Or are you going to step into rest. Isn't it amazing that with all of our technology today, we live in an industrialized society and we're no longer hunters and gatherers just trying to survive off of food that, that we're so exhausted all the time. <laughs> like, we don't have to gather. We don't always have to prepare that much. You could just walk out the door, get in your car, go to a restaurant. Somebody will do all the work for you. You can go home. You don't have to do a lot of the work. You just turn up the heat. You turn on the air conditioning. You turn on the lights. You can just kind of, and yet we're just exhausted all the time. Why? Maybe it's because we're chasing after all the same things the world does. And just when those lights come on, we just carry that burden running off into the dark. And all the time, Jesus is saying, stop, stop, come back home. Come back home, my burden is light. How does Jesus make God known? Through his relationship to God, by enlightening everyone who believes in him, and last, by physically making God known. Look at verse 14, one of the most marvelous, magnificent verses that we have in the scriptures. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. This means that Jesus, the word, fully God, became fully human at the same time. We call this the incarnation. The son of God came and lived with us, the title that we give Jesus because of this reality, because of the incarnation, is Emmanuel, God with us. It's hard for me to fathom, to be honest. Just think about it. Just think about the reality of our, our faith here. God, the creator of all things, God the Father who sent the Son, then God, Jesus, drank water that he created, but then later he chose to walk on top of it. God needed to sleep in a boat, rocking back and forth in the water. And then he put an ear, uh, and, then he, and then he put uh, 
And then he heard from his disciples that they were beginning to sink and he gets up and he told a storm to stop. God ate tilapia out of a lake with his buddies. And then he had a whole school of tilapia swim into his buddy's net. God was arrested by hundreds of armed soldiers. And then he put the ear back on one of them after it had been sliced off. God wept when he found out one of his friends died. And then he ordered his friend to walk out of his tomb. God had to repeat himself over and over again with his friends. And then he chooses to have a chat with Moses and Elijah on top of a mountain, even though they'd been dead for centuries. God breathed his last on a cross. Then a couple days later, he took a walk along the road with a few of his disciples. God climbed up another mountain. And even though he climbed all the way to the top of it, once he got to the top, he was floating off and taken away into the sky to return to the Father in heaven. I can sort of comprehend Jesus' divinity, and I can sort of comprehend his humanity, but what blows me away is that perfect divinity put on broken humanity and then came to live with broken humanity and then chose to die for broken humanity so that broken humanity could be brought back into the presence of perfect divinity. That's the life of Jesus. That's what he's done for you. Jesus shines the light on God. We have seen his glory. We have experienced his grace. We have listened to his truth. And he is asking you this morning, will you follow me? Will you follow me? That's his invitation. It's been his invitation for 2,000 years. Will you follow me? You're following somebody. The somebody might be the person in the mirror, but you are following something or someone. And he says, will you follow me? Wherever I lead you, wherever I take you, will you follow? If you have never said yes, will you today? And if you have said yes to Christ, then every day we wake up with the same question. Will you keep following me? Will you follow me again? Will you follow me this morning? Will you follow me this afternoon? Follow him. Why? Because he's the one who shows us, reveals to us God, who brings us to God, who saves us for God. I'm gonna pray for us now. Father, thank you for your word Father, as we look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, it's this big, magnificent view. And so, Father, as we think about our Messiah, Father, would you help us to understand the truth of who he is? And if there be any here today who have not yet received him, Father, I pray that they would in these moments submit their heart and lives to him in faith. Father, that they would in these moments confess that they are in desperate need of a savior, the creator of all things, to rescue them from their sin so that they might experience real and full life everlasting. And Father, for all of us who have, Father, may we follow your son's way today. He is our Messiah and Lord. We believe in him, the son of God. 
who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that on this day we remember you entering into that city, Jerusalem, one final time, knowing what was to come, knowing that all this would lead to a cross, but ultimately to our salvation and your glorification. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.